So let me ask a question to start the sermon today. Who are your favorite, I don't know if this is the right word, but your favorite bullies from the movies? The people you love to hate. Favorite bullies from the movies. Let me hear a few. Biff Tannen Tannen from Back to the Future. All right, cool. Maybe the archetype or the example of what a bully is. Who else? O'Doyle. Who's that? From Billy Madison, okay, O'Doyle from Billy Madison, great. Who else? Any other bullies from movies you can think of? Shout it out, RJ. The blonde haired guy from Karate Kid. I may have even written his name down here, but we all know who you're talking about. Is his name Johnny, right? It's Johnny from Karate Kid. Yeah, he's a jerk and a bully, isn't he? Who else? Go ahead. Ooh, Kiefer Sutherland from The Lost Boys. Yes. Bad dude. In the back. Tebow. Who? Friday. Oh, from Friday. I thought he said Tebow, as in Tim Tebow. I was like, wow, I've never heard him called a bully before, but oh, okay. All right. Who else? Who else? Any other bullies? Frank Underwood, okay. He's a bully. Not a movie, but that's okay. It's close. Frank Underwood is definitely a bad dude. How about anyone know who Scott Farkas is? This is one of my favorite. Someone said yes. Scott Farkas is the bully from A Christmas Story. Do you remember him? Freckles and the big hat and everything. What about Regina George? Anyone remember her? Mean Girls, total bully. And then um, the one I'll just mention again, because it was the first one that came up, I wasn't surprised. I actually took about 15 minutes and looked at all these lists online to see if I could learn who the most famous bullies were. But number one was always Biff Tannen from Back to the Future. So I don't know, maybe the holidays, it's not necessarily a Christmas movie, but it's a fun movie. It's a good time to go back and see how bad Biff really was. But what, and you don't have to answer, this is more of a rhetorical question, but you can if you want. What is the one thing that all of these bullies have in common? Besides being jerks, besides being very unlikable, maybe insecure, they never win in the movies, do they? In the movies, the bullies almost always lose in the end, and the little guy or the little girl comes out on top, right? That's why we like the movies. But is that true in real life? It doesn't really seem like it, does it? It often seems like the people who push people around, particularly people who have some level of power who can push the little person down, someone who's somehow marginalized or has less power or less resources, they seem to move ahead in society, don't they? They seem to win. Now, I know a lot of you right now might be thinking in terms of politics because we just finished two years of all kinds of craziness there, but I'm not just talking about politics. Whenever someone uses their power to pick at someone's perceived weaknesses or disadvantages to push them down in order to lift themselves up, that's bullying. And it's not restricted to politics. In fact, according to an article in Forbes, 37% of workers report being bullied at work. That's 54 million people. So what can we do? Well, I was thinking, of course, after reading all of these lists, we could just turn to the movies to see what they do in the movies 
to defeat the bully. So I was reading articles and I came across this article, Five Bad Ideas for Dealing with Bullies You Learn from the Movies by John Cheese. That's his real name, John Cheese. Uh, And he lists the five most common approaches to bullies and basically how they aren't really good strategies. Number one was tell an adult and then that adult will teach you to fight. All right, there's one. The second tactic is just ignore them unless you can verbally slay them and have this big killer tirade that just cuts everything out from underneath them. A third approach is run and run and run and then you'll, evic- you'll eventually have victory. So a lot of movies, someone's running for the whole movie. But then at the end, they stand up and they beat up the, the bully somehow. Or number four is just fight back. You will always win because that seems to happen in the movies. Number five is fight back. There are no consequences. Now, the author of this uh, pointed out that maybe these aren't the best strategies because in real life, uh, fighting fire with fire and violence with violence, uh, there's a good chance you'll just get beat up even worse. Or if you do fight back and win, you're probably going to end up in jail for assault. So if we're tired of bullies winning, and it seems like movies really can't help us much except maybe inspire us, but their tactics are flawed, what can we actually do in the real world to stand up to bullies in a way that will make a difference, a way that can actually work and is different from being bullied. Because if we fight fire with fire, anytime you do the same to someone else who's doing it to you, you become the thing you don't want to be. And Becca talked, I think, very well about that last week. So what's another way? That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to take a look at a parable that Jesus told Because we're in the middle of looking at his parables. And when Jesus tells parables, lots of times they have to do with the kingdom of God. Where things are the way that Jesus wants them to be. Where God rules. Where things are just. So we're going to look at this and see what we can learn that can actually help us in our real lives. So this is Luke chapter 14, uh, starting in verse 7. And speaking of Jesus, it says, When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come to you and say, Give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, Move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you have a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet... Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And when one of those at the table with him heard him say this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, A certain man, (laughs) that guy really thought he was nailing it. And then Jesus tells another story. I just think that's interesting. Oh, really? Okay, so Jesus replies, A certain man was preparing a great banquet 
and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those uh, who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field, and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told the servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, what we see here, I think, is Jesus explaining what life looks like in his kingdom. Notice they're they're parables of the kingdom of God. And one thing I think that we can see is that in the kingdom of Jesus, it's different. Things don't work the same way they do everywhere else. And one way to think of this is to say that things are going to flip in Jesus' kingdom. And, And you see this throughout this in the different parables he tells and the things he says. So in verse 11, he says, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In verse 13, he says, But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And then verse 24, I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. There's a way that things work in this world that seems like the way it is and the way it always will be. But that's not the way it should be, and that won't always be the way it is. There's a lot of words there. Let me say that again. There's a way that things work in this world that seems like the way it is and the way it always will be. That's not the way it should be, and that won't always be the way it is. It looks to us like bullies are right. We have to take what we need in life. We have to promote ourselves. We have to put others down to get ahead. But take a look at the example of honor that Jesus uses in this passage. It's the first story that he tells, and Jesus points out an approach that looks good but fails miserably and an approach that looks like a terrible approach but actually comes through brilliantly. So there's an approach that looks good but doesn't work, and that's self-promotion. Verse 80 says, When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may may have been invited. If so, the host who invited you both will come to you and say, Give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. Now, this is tricky. This is tricky because it looks like the surest way to get the honor that you want And notice Jesus never denigrates anyone for wanting to be honored. But it looks like the surest way to get the honor that you want is to take it. But what Jesus points out here is that honor isn't something that can be taken. It has to be given. Taking honor for ourselves doesn't work, and it never feels right. You know, when we promote ourselves... We're generally hoping that having the position that we want, the place that we want, the girlfriend that we want, the job that we dreamed of, that will answer all of the questions we've been asking of ourselves. 
Do I matter? Who am I? What is my place in the world? We expect if we take those things, we can define for ourselves the answer to all of those questions. But instead, it just makes it worse. And here's why. When we take the honor for ourselves, we know that we have taken the honor for ourselves. And in the back of our minds, in the back of our hearts, we can never shake the feeling that someone else might come along. Someone who's better for my boyfriend. Someone who's better at this job. And I'm going to get kicked out and that person's going to take my place. In fact, because of the way we attained our honor or we took it for ourselves, we think to ourselves, what if the real Brad comes into the light? And when we take it, the honor doesn't really define us. It just points out our insecurities. And we can't even enjoy any success that we think we've obtained. So Jesus here, he affirms the longing for honor. But through the story, he makes it clear that honor isn't something you can take. And for honor to really bring peace, it has to be internal. It has to be something that you are, not something you take for yourselves. Another way to say this and another approach, I think this is what Jesus is offering here, an approach that will work is affirmation. He says, but when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. Honor can't be taken, at least not in a way that's life-giving. It can only be given. When somebody who actually knows who you are and sees you for who you are and understands what you're made of, looks at you and affirms who you are and what your place is, That makes a difference. Then you can sit in the seat of honor and know that you belong there. See, the way things are, or at least the way things appear to be, and that would be promote yourself, only take care of your own, get as rich as you possibly can, use people emotionally, sexually, materially. Those are precepts or approaches to life that seem to be natural, that seem to offer us what we want, but they don't work. And we just don't realize it because they seem easier. And we are constantly chasing after them. But here Jesus is flipping that on its ear. And he's promising that ultimately it's all going to flip. A lot of his stories are about like someday when it all turns over. And he says things like, the last will be first and many first will be last. Blessed are the poor. It's better to give than receive. And he also says, not just someday, but that we can see this coming, this kingdom now. And what I'm taking from this is this idea that our lives right now can be a foretaste of what's to come. So Jesus, I think a big theme we get from this passage is this is the way it's all going to be finally. But he's also saying you can flip some things now. You can experience this now. Luke 14, he says, when some of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. 
And Jesus replied, and we read this, uh, a man's preparing a banquet. He invites all of these people. <laughs> no one comes. So he goes out and he says, uh, he says make sure that you invite uh, quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town. Bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done. There's still room. And he says, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in. So my house will be full. So here Jesus is telling the story of the ultimate banquet when the kingdom of God is at its fullest, right? So the guy says, blessed are people who dine in the kingdom. And he says, oh, this is what it's going to look like. And what do we learn? Well, we see again that all sorts of surprising guests will be invited. But I want us to see something else. The ultimate party is actually being prefigured or shown as it is now in the life of Jesus. So if you read the life of Jesus, a lot of it focuses on the meals that he eats. It almost sometimes it feels like we're just going from meal to meal with Jesus, right? And some of the things happen along the way between the meals. It's like his dinner log, almost. But every time we see Jesus eating with people, it's either with this group that sort of shows what heaven's going to be like eventually, or it's challenging another group to say, hey, this isn't what heaven's going to be like. So right now we have him eating with the Pharisees, who were the very religious people. And he's telling the story, hey, it's not going to look like this. And then we watch his life and we see him creating what it's going to look like as he lives his life, as he goes from meal to meal. One New Testament scholar I read put it this way when talking about Jesus. He said, his meals are harbingers or pictures of the banquet to be shared in the kingdom of God. They're meant to give us a taste of the future and hope for what is to come. They're to help us see when our struggle will be turned into beauty. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote this crazy novel called The Great Divorce. And the main character in that novel is given a chance to tour both heaven and hell. It's a really interesting book. And in heaven, he meets an angel who tries to explain to him uh, some ideas about how to think of or how to understand the struggles of his life. And this is what the angel said. He says, That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And of some sinful pleasure, they say, let me have this and I'll take the consequences. Little dreaming how damnation will spread back into their past and contaminate the pleasure of the sin. Both processes begin even before death. And the idea is that eventually heaven will put things in perspective, that we'll be able to see how things fit together and how God was using everything to bring about a good end. But more than that, because this isn't, Jesus' stories aren't about the sweet by and by. They're about the here and now and the sweet by and by. More than that is the opportunity to create heaven on earth. To fight for that now. Jesus prayed, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And community can connect us to this, to what Lewis calls future glory now. Uh, (laughs) Forgive me, there's a song by Bruce Springsteen. 
Um, it was on his Wrecking Ball album, which is a couple albums ago, and uh, it catches, I think, this idea. It's a song called Land of Hope and Dreams. Before it was on an album, he used to play it at a lot of his concerts. And I think uh, he put it on his album because he was inspired by the death of a good friend. And he borrows the image of a train, sort of from classic gospel songs and spiritual songs. And he paints a picture of the ride to this great banquet in the kingdom of God. And he says this. He says, this train carries saints and sinners. This train carries losers and winners. This train carries whores and gamblers. This train carries lost souls. This train, dreams, will not be thwarted. This train, faith, will be rewarded. This train, hear the steel wheels singing. This train, bells of freedom ringing. And here is a song about the kingdom of God. It's full of saints, sinners, losers, winners, whores, gamblers, lost souls, but they're all headed somewhere. They aren't stuck, but instead they're experiencing the kingdom now and looking forward to its perfection. This isn't a ride where people just admit that they have problems and stew in that or give up or just say, oh, the world is the way it is. We'll just hang on until it's all over. They're dreaming. They still have faith, and they're experiencing more and more freedom. But if we want this life now to be a foretaste of what's coming, Jesus offers us a solution here, and that is to build a heaven now community. What does that mean? Well, first, it means the guest list has to change. So there's a f- refrain in these stories, uh, phrases like bring in, invite, and it's always connected to the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, people you wouldn't expect to be on the guest list. And if you're in that culture in that day, you particularly wouldn't because there were scriptures like Leviticus 21 from the Old Testament where those particular people are actually the people who weren't allowed to come into the most holy places of God's temple, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And many authorities wouldn't let them in the temple at all. And Jesus is flipping this on its ear. He's saying, look for these people and invite them into the kingdom. Target them. They're in. They're a part of my kingdom. This is the way it will be. So taste it now. And I think, actually, this is one of the things that the movies got right. If you'll notice, in a lot of movies, the bullies are finally defeated when all of the regular people who have been held down or who are afraid finally band together and say enough is enough. The nerds rise up, right? And the people follow. It's time for the nerds to rise up, to band together, to rise together so that the bullies are outnumbered and lose the power of intimidation. We can do that through community. Jesus' picture of community is a picture of nerds at a party, people you wouldn't expect. And whatever nerd means to you, whoever's marginalized, who, whatever groups you wouldn't expect to be together, People you would easily overlook 
who don't necessarily have all the privileges or resources to stand up alone, but are a powerful force when they're together. They're a picture of the kingdom that's coming. And they're in the presence of the master of the banquet. If we want to impact West Philadelphia, we need each other. And we need each other to include people from every background in the city. Everyone is invited, even the religious people. Notice the story Jesus tells is to the Pharisees, the most religious of the religious. But the guest list is wide open, wide open. And that, connected to the power and the presence of Jesus, is what makes all the difference. So let's, let's get to know each other better. We need to know each other better. We need to share our lives, our resources, our hearts. And we need to know people who come from different backgrounds. This parable is of a banquet. It's a meal, a party. So I've got an application for this sermon for you that everyone here is going to love. Party. Have a good time. Be in each other's homes. Sit around the table. Tell stories. Share your experiences. Let's find out who's really competitive and hates to lose at board games. Why are you all looking at me? Let's keep it simple. Let's be in small groups together. There's a list on the board out in the lobby. Let's get to know each other. Let's be where we can taste a bit of heaven now. It won't be perfect because it's full of us, but it'll be powerful if we commit to each other, we get to know each other. If you want to stop bullies, start by getting to know the nerds around you, including yourself, especially the ones that seem the most different. Do it seriously. It sounds so good right now, but once you leave here, you're going to be so tempted to get in your routine. Hang out with the people you know where it's the most comfortable because you want to relax. I'm saying don't do that. Do some of that, but connect with people you don't know that are different from you, at least as far as you can tell. You'll find out you have a lot of common ground, but you'll also learn a lot too. Do it You know, if you hear this sermon and you don't have dinner with someone you wouldn't have before, this whole sermon has probably been a waste. Do it. Do it now. December is the time of parties and gatherings. Please invite some people you wouldn't have thought of before. And go to some parties you wouldn't have had time for before. It's the month of parties. You have so many opportunities. And as we do, let's ask one more question. Can you do that? Is that like the best, like most fun, like try this from the sermon thing ever? Go to some parties, meet some new people. Some of you are like, I'm an introvert. That's a little bit. I'm like, well, okay, just try anyway, you know, do it. And as we do, let's ask one more question. And that is this, who's missing? Who's missing? Verse 22 says, sir, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told the servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house may be full. There's lots of room and Jesus wants the party to be full. Who's missing that should be there? 
The missing are always a priority to Jesus. He never lets go of it. In the next chapter after the story, he says this. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? You are important to Jesus. Your friends are important to Jesus. Everyone belongs around this table, but not everybody knows it. Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Compel them. Not everyone believes that they're welcome. Not everyone believes that another type of community is even possible. One that doesn't operate by a bully's intimidation, but that flips what is normal on its ear. How are you prioritizing the missing? What are you doing to compel people? Things need to flip. In our city, in our neighborhood, in our lives. But our temptation is to run after things and live with approaches that don't work. But like the people in Jesus' stories, we're running. When we do that, we're running after fields and relationships and oxen. Who are met, and as a power grab. And what we need and what the folks around us need is a crazy, diverse community centered around the person that makes all the difference. The king that flips things. That's Jesus.